Take the Ron Artest situation with the elbow. If that had been more than just a, a mild concussion that the victim suffered, but maybe a, a cracked skull and ending his career, I would think that you might have a prosecutor thinking about criminal action, and I think you might have hardened the victim thinking about a lawsuit against a guy, a multimillionaire, who just cracked him in the, in the skull and ended his career. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from the great state of Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams across the country in a somewhat overcast and marine layer of Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? Wait a minute, Craig. Marine layer. Does that mean it's finally not sunny one day in Southern California? Uh, only for the morning, Bob. It'll wear okay. off in the afternoon. Okay. okay. All right. Well, I, and I write a blog called uh, Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And, Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, uh, Meta World Peace and his infamous elbow jab, bounty hunters in the NFL, soccer matches escalating into riots, high school hockey games turned violent, spectator violence. Where is the legal line when it comes to violence in sports, or is this just the nature of the game? And right now on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to turn to the experts for their take on whether there should be legal implications in sports when an athlete goes too far. We'll also take a look at potential legislation aimed at curbing violence in sports and the protection of athletes by sports organizations and state regulation. To help us do that today uh, are the are our two guests. First of all, let me welcome to the show Attorney Eldon L. Ham, adjunct professor at Chicago Kent College of Law. Uh, Eldon Ham writes recently wrote a great op-ed piece in the New York Times on violence in sports called "Give the Ref a Gavel." Eldon's fourth sports-related book is titled "Broadcasting Baseball: A History of the National Pastime on Radio and Television." For more information on Eldon's writings and his work, you can go to his website at eldenham.com. That's eldenham.com. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Eldon Ham. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Bob, our next guest is Professor Matthew Mitten. He's the director of the National Sports Law Institute at Marquette University Law School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Professor Mitten teaches courses in amateur sports law, professional sports law, Sports Sponsorship, Legal and Business Issues, and Torts. For more information on Matthew, you can go to law.marquette.edu. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Matthew Mitten. Pleased to be part of the discussion. Well, then let's let's start with you. It seems somewhat of a kind of obvious question here, but um, is there really a problem with violence in sports? Or like in the case of hockey, is uh, violence just part of sports culture? Actually, it's a little of both. Certainly the contact sports in particular Violence is a part of the culture, and it's a part of the game, and and athletes do assume the risk of a certain degree of violence and injury that results. But it's always been uh, a part of the game, and it's but yet it's probably always been a problem too. But over the years, uh, 
until just recent years or maybe a decade or so, uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Uh, I, I personally think one of the reasons that it didn't get so much attention is that up until the invention of the video camera, nobody could really sort out whatever happened on the field of play. You know, it's really hard to tell uh, in, in, in the midst of a football pileup or something like that. But with uh, videotape replay now, not only for pros, but, you know, everything from Little League all the way up is, is taped by somebody. And I think we have the ability to look and see what happened and when and why. And so I think there's not any real reason why we can't define a level of violence on the field, which I suggested might be called flagrant sports battery, where we can actually do something about it. Doesn't mean we have to do something about every play by any stretch. But when they go over the line, why not take a look? Well, it, it maybe part of the question is what what should be done about it. I mean, just, just in today's news, uh, we hear that four players for the New Orleans Saints have been suspended without pay for their, I guess, for their participation in the team sort of bounty program that uh, basically paid a, a a reward for for being rough with with the the opposing team. Um, Matt Mitten. Uh, you know, is is that is is suspension enough here, or should we be looking at uh, should be letting teams police themselves, or leagues police their players, or or do we need legal remedies beyond that? Well, I think the first level, as Eldon mentioned, is the um, you know the, the the leagues policing themselves. I mean, I think that you know I have a little bit different view than Eldon, but I think that that's that's the most effective way to eliminate it when you have players uh, losing. Uh, very significant sums of money. Jonathan Vilma is suspended for a full year. I don't know what his salary is, but it's several million dollars. That is certainly going to get professional athletes' attention. And if you look at amateur sports, uh, high school, uh, college, youth, again, athletes love to play. And if they're, they're, they're pulled off the field for any significant period of time, I think that's going to serve as a significant deterrence in, you know, egregious cases, there's always the possibility of a civil lawsuit by the uh, injured athlete to recover for his injuries. And then, you know, ones that are even more egregious, uh, occasionally you'll see criminal prosecutions. I guess you have to, you have to kind of wonder whether, uh, whether these players, I mean, as you point out, Jonathan Vilma getting suspended for the entire 2012 season is is a pretty egregious penalty. But in a way, are, are any of these players being made scapegoats in a sense? Uh, well, as we kind of look the other way to everything else that's going on in sports, I mean, you know, football, hockey, uh, these are violent sports. People are, are getting injured all the time. Uh, I mean, what do you think about that? Are, these, are Eldon, are these people being made scapegoats? It strikes me that some of the uh, suspensions for the individual players, which range from about three games to uh, the whole season, depending on which player, uh, might be might be a little heavy-handed. Maybe the three games is okay, but the rule itself that they are accused of violating is is a little vague. Uh, I understand what's happening. My guess is that the penalties are so harsh. Uh, in one case, eight games, I think, and in another, the the whole season, is because the NFL got extremely embarrassed over this. And it's more than just a little embarrassment. It's It goes to the heart of the NFL safety program, 
where at the same time you have all these lawsuits about concussions, NFL programs promoting safety, particularly head safety, at the same time you have this conspiracy to take off somebody's head uh, in, in the colloquial sense, and the NFL is reacting to that, and it wants to make a strong, strong statement. Having said that, uh, these four players might be scapegoats, uh, or maybe they're just the, the wrong guys in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was the incident with uh, uh, Meta World Peace, formerly known as Ron Artis, was suspended for seven games for his elbow jab. Uh, Eldon or Matthew, Matt, let me ask you, is that uh, what about that as a punishment for him? Is that too light of a punishment, too severe? Well, it's really hard to answer that in the abstract because, you know, we need to look at, you know, what are the, you know, constraints of the collective bargaining agreement and uniform player contract on the league and commissioner's ability to discipline. I mean, that's something that's collectively bargained, and that establishes the outer bounds of that. And, you know, clearly this is something where deliberately elbowing someone is not a legitimate part of the game. So some discipline is appropriate. In terms of, you know, exactly what's the uh, you know, right level or, or right number of games, there's a lot of discretion provided to the league, but they have to be consistent. You'd have to compare this to other examples of, um, you know, deliberate elbowing or, you know, things of, of similar nature. It sounds about right to me, but I haven't sat down and looked at, all right, let's look over the last couple of years. What have been, you know, relatively similar incidents of violence and what's been the punishment? How would this translate into, I mean, obviously if, if uh, Meta World Peace had cold cocked somebody with his elbow off the basketball court, he'd probably be charged with felony assault. Why isn't he being charged for this action? I suppose he still could be. It's it's a part of what sports are all about, though, and it's a very, not only fine line, but probably a pretty vague one, too. Uh, there's, there's a lot of spontaneous conduct on the court. There's high emotions. Uh, by the nature of the sport, it's contact in general, and that's what's different from when you and I are walking down the street. Uh, we don't expect a lot of severe, violent contact capable of knocking us over, but we do on the basketball court. So there is a wide latitude for that, and rightfully so. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the sport at all. Uh, I, I think I agree with Matt in terms of it's hard to assess uh, world peace's uh, seven-game suspension, uh, certainly in a vacuum. The one thing that did strike me was that given his other history, I was a little surprised that it was that small because he himself has been suspended multiple times. I think it adds up to a number like 113 or 115 games collectively, uh, one of which was about 73 or so for the fight that spilled into the stands a few years back. Latrell Sprewell, another example, uh, who choked his coach a, a number of years ago, got ended up with 63 games after appealing a full season. I just thought that because Ron Artest has been involved in so many so often that they may have escalated and, and become a little harsher than you might give another player. So I thought it might be more than seven. I don't know what the number would be, but I thought that was a little light under his circumstances. Well, Elder, just to follow up on, on what Craig just talk, asked about it. I mean, he, you, you made the point in your in your New York Times uh, op-ed that 
that the way the criminal law treats these cases uh, makes this kind of draw a line between what happens on the field and what happens off the field. I mean, you talk about a case uh, uh, in the U.S., I think it was a hockey case in which uh, there was a, a criminal prosecution, uh, but only because it happened once the buzzer had uh, sounded the end of the game. Yeah, literally only a couple of seconds worth. All the players were still on the ice and everything, and for all practical purposes, the game was winding down. It, uh, but the buzzer went off, and then the hit happened almost instantaneously. Uh, the courts around the country differ, but in my experience, for the most part, uh, they don't like to get involved in criminal conduct or alleged criminal conduct if it happens on the field of play, so as soon as you step onto that field, uh, or uh, if it's during the, dur- during the game time, as you just suggested. So... Uh, those seem to be sacred grounds. Doesn't mean you can't have a prosecution, but it means the prosecutors are are not too anxious to try it, and that the judges aren't too anxious to be sympathetic to it. And the purpose of my Times article was to suggest that maybe it doesn't have to be that vague. If we if states could define this thing called flagrant sports battery and give it some teeth, and so that occasionally prosecutors may be encouraged to take the next step and prosecute, whereas a few years ago, maybe they wouldn't have. Well, you know, the other thing, you know, I basically agree with Eldon. The only thing I would add to this is it's relatively rare that you see any criminal prosecutions uh, in the U.S. of professional athletes in, in comparison to Canada. There's been a number of prosecutions and even convictions uh, largely involving uh, the NHL and stick swinging incidents. Um, you know, when Marty McSorley um, attacked Donald Brashear from behind and struck him and he had a grand, grand mal seizure on the ice. But you don't tend to see that in the U.S. And, and um, Eldon's exactly right. I mean, if it occurred during um, during the game, you rarely see it. And even then, it. If it's outside of it, it's only if there is a serious injury that results. So there's very much uh, reluctance of prosecutors to, to bring these suits and file charges in the U.S., particularly against pro athletes. I think it's kind of ironic that they have uh, brought these actions against um, uh, amateur players. Is there a legal basis for that, or is it just their fear of, of, uh, of an unpopular prosecution? Well, my thought is is that there's probably a little bit broader scope of what's considered pro- part of the game. A little more violence is perhaps acceptable uh, in the context of pro sports. I'm not sure I agree with it, but I think that might be the practical reality. Um, but there's a lot of uh, discretion that prosecutors have, and these are, are relatively rare cases. Matt, do you remember uh, years ago the Mike Tyson situation where he he bit off a part of uh, Vander Holofield's ear. I do. Yeah. Do you, I don't recall him being criminally prosecuted for that. Uh, maybe you can help me recall. I know that Tyson got his license revoked and he had a $3 million fine for his trouble. But that it's kind of a good example of one of the things that we're talking about. Well, I mean, you, your, your article calls for, Eldon, your article calls for you say you write your article rather than wait for our courts to gradually wake up. State legislatures should accelerate the process by adopting laws, defining and criminalizing something we can call flagrant sports battery. 
I, I mean, I, again, again, I'm kind of wondering, do, do we need these statutes uh, to provide a legal basis or is the legal basis already there, but we need the statutes just to kind of prod prosecutors into uh, being more uh, diligent about these cases? Well, it's probably more of the latter uh, because if a, an enterprising prosecutor wanted to take some of these cases and run with it, uh, the prosecutor probably could and may, in fact, have some success with it. But uh, another sub-reason to do this is to kind of shake the culture up a little uh, by addressing it directly because there is still a lingering kind of a good old boy, let's not get too excited about this attitude regarding sports. That might even be true more of the pro sports, getting back to, to Matt's comment about why there seems to be a difference. But uh, that was also a part of my motivation is to shake things up a little bit so that people start to think about this. Because otherwise you have to let each of the 50 states kind of evolve on their own. And by the time they all get around to recognizing this, uh, a lot of time will go by, and if they criminal laws are statutory in nature, so if the legislators sit down and, and come up with something that gives their uh, constituents some definition and their prosecutors some tools, maybe it would be helpful. Well, as we know, violence really is not limited to professional sports. It's also been found in hometown sports. Recently in Massachusetts, a high school hockey player was seriously injured with a concussion after he got checked by another player. And the parents of the teen that was injured wanted to file criminal assault and battery charges. They did, and but they were tossed by the judge. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, does, does the same kind of tolerance for violence exist in hometown sports as it does in professional sports? Yeah, I'm not really surprised by that. I mean, you know, we, we need some additional facts to know why the, the judge dismissed the charges. How was this during uh, the course of the game? Um, and, and legitimate, you know, checking is a part of the game. I don't, you know, know enough about exactly what happened. But th there are a number of cases, including one from New York, where during an adult recreational league, it was a no-checking league. Someone was checked from behind. They went head first into the goalpost. They hit their he head. Uh, may have suffered a minor concussion, but the court tossed it out as a matter of law, basically said that this isn't so far afield that it would justify criminal liability. So I think that the view of the Massachusetts court is probably right in line with most other courts in the U.S. And to, to me, that's a good example of what uh, I'm trying to, to talk about, because uh, it, if the courts just want to throw these things out because they don't want to get their hands dirty and get into the big mess and try to sort it all out. Uh, I'm not sure that's a reason to uh, discard justice. I, I am sympathetic with the fact that it's hard to sort everything out. We do have videotape uh, for most games people can look at. And I do appreciate that a hockey player assumes a high degree of risk, even of the rules being broken, even of getting maybe checked when you didn't expect to. But in that case, a no-check league where somebody blasts somebody and injures them severely, hey, if it was intentional and it looks intentional and you can prove it's intentional, I'm disappointed that the court threw it out. Well, that, that raises an interesting question. In the assumption of the risk doctrine, does it include that you assume the risk of players breaking the rules? Is that part of the assumption of the risk? It's, it seems kind of odd that that would be the case. Well, it actually is uh, because the rules get broken a lot. And you can't go to court every time there's a flag thrown. 
but there's some level at which uh, if how egregious it becomes and how egregious the injury is does draw a line someplace. It's just a question of finding it. Well, do you think the fans could prosecute the players for getting beat up in the stands? I mean, in, in Ron Artest's case, he got the 73-game suspension for fighting with a fan in the stands. Could the fan press charges and won? Yes, I think that's a very different situation. Clearly, when when players go into the stands, that's very different from, you know, violence that occurs as part of the game or incidental with within the bounds of play. But yeah, once uh, players go into the stands and fights break out and there's injuries, that that's something in my mind that, you know, very clearly ought to lead to criminal liability in appropriate cases. And you would then assume that the same thing would be the case when the dad runs onto the field and beats up another player or another ref or another coach. Yeah. Again, that's something that's clearly not part of the game there. It's not, you know, the, the, the dad's not even one of the players. It's not uh, player on player, you know, violence is part of the game. It's a spectator coming on to the uh, playing field where they have no right to be and uh, assaulting a, another player. Okay, well, it's, gentlemen, it's time for us to take a short break. We will have much more on the legal implications of violence in sports when Lawyer to Lawyer returns on the Legal Talk Network. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the, the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter. LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. 
Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking today about violence in sports, professional and amateur sports, with with our guest Eldon L. Ham, a lawyer and adjunct professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, and uh, Matt Mitten, a professor uh, director of the National Sports Law Institute at Marquette University Law School. Um, I wanted to kind of circle back to this, uh, this the, the bounties being paid, I, I guess, in, in sports, the, the, the New Orleans uh, suspensions. Uh, and uh, I mean, this, this, that case seems to kind of take this whole thing to a different level in the sense that we're talking here about, uh, you know, not an individual player on player violence or player on fan or fan on player, or however that might work out, but something that was organized and orchestrated and court condoned from from higher up uh, how, how should the law treat a situation like this uh, should you know should should the team face criminal prosecution in some way should higher ups face criminal prosecution here Eldon let me ask you that yeah okay it's a it's an interesting question I I think one distinction here if I can maybe try to, to, to define why 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 this may bother you in particular and, and others as well. When the violence erupts on the field of play as a result of the the natural contact and the intensity of the play on the field, it's to be expected to a large degree and, and also to a large degree the risk of that is assumed by the other players. But when it becomes clearly intentional and and it's not a part of winning the game, but it's a part of a side bet of uh, injuring somebody and putting them out of the game or or ending their career, for that matter, it has now taken on a, a different kind of character. It's really now more of a a conspiracy to commit mayhem as opposed to the natural injuries, the result out of what is admittedly a very violent game to begin with. So somewhere in there lies a line that that uh, some people aren't willing to cross, and obviously the NFL is making a, a big point of it. And could they be prosecuted? Yes. Should they be? I, I suspect probably. Uh, I don't know what to what degree, but if there's an enterprising prosecutor uh, locally in a state that has laws sympathetic enough, I, I would think that they would take a, a shot at it. What about the, uh, the, the famous baseball bench brawl where you have – a pitcher who either intentionally or unintentionally beans a player, and God only knows it's a subjective viewpoint whether or not the pitcher intentionally hit the player or not. And then, you know, in a, what is essentially a non-contact sport, I mean, there's a limited amount of contact in baseball, but both benches just erupt and, and get on the field and get into a brawl. How is that part of the game? Well, I would, you know, the brawl pretty clearly is, is, is not part of the game. But I think it's unlikely you'll see, you know, clearly the league is going to impose some discipline on the participants for that conduct. But I think it's very unlikely you would see um, a a criminal prosecution unless someone was seriously hurt. And fortunately, I don't think that has happened uh, in baseball thus far. Yeah, I I don't recall that either specifically, although I agree. I, I, I do think that if 
someone did get seriously hurt, then the prosecutor's hand is sort of forced. They at least have to look at it. One of these days, I think you might find some lawsuits from one player uh, against another, too. If if the injury is serious enough and the conduct egregious enough, take the Ron Artest situation with the elbow. If that had been more than just a, a mild concussion that the victim suffered, but maybe a, a cracked skull and ending his career, I would think that you might have a prosecutor thinking about criminal action, and I think you might have Harden, the victim, thinking about a lawsuit against a guy, a multimillionaire, who just cracked him in the in the skull and ended his career. So to some degree, it's a, a partly a function of the degree, I suppose, but uh, we may see that. So Matt, Matt, I'm wondering where you stand on this issue proposed by Alden of, of state legislatures perhaps becoming more uh, active in legislating with regard to uh, violence in sports. Uh, what's your position on that? Well, my thought is that, you know, there's existing laws that could be used to charge these players. You know, we the prosecutions thus far have been um, criminal assault and battery. So I think that the existing laws are broad enough to encompass it. I think the real question is when, if ever, are prosecutors willing to bring charges? And I think if um, Eldon's proposal were adopted and there were um, you know, sports violence-specific laws on the books, it might nudge prosecutors more in the direction to bring these suits because there's clearer uh, you know, legislative intent as opposed to just taking um, general laws. Yeah, I think... I- um, Matt's right about that. In, in theory, the existing laws ought to be adequate. It's just that in practice, they don't seem to be. It's, uh, I, it makes me think of other uh, larger, profound changes in our laws over the decades. Like, for example, the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Uh, in theory, that shouldn't have been necessary if, if we applied the Constitution the way we all might want to see it applied. But sometimes it takes a, a different approach, a different statute, a different look to nudge things past a, a sticking point. And it seems to me there's a little bit of a sticking point with all this violent stuff because the courts really do uh, shy away from it and they run from it. And the prosecutors are afraid to bring these cases. And it goes back to my first observation. I think in the old days, you just couldn't tell what the heck happened on the field. These days you can uh, for the most part. So. So maybe we ought to take a look, but it's it's uh, it's certainly a gray area, not one that's uh, definitively black and white. Well, gentlemen, we just about reached the end of our show, and we'd like to wrap up and get your final thoughts and your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they'd like to. But as you do, one of the things that I'd like you to give some thought to and talk about briefly is just, you know, world peace was suspended because of the elbow, obviously, and he was suspended in Los Angeles because the game was played in Los Angeles. What would have happened or what do you think could have happened in, in, in many situations where teams travel to other, other cities? You think you might find an enterprising prosecutor in Oklahoma City that might have prosecuted Meta World Peace for that had that game been played in Oklahoma City? Yeah, it's a really good point, uh, particularly if a, if a local uh, player, popular or not, suffers a severe injury from a visiting player. Uh, the home court advantage applies uh, not just on the basketball court, but extends into the uh, the civil and the criminal courts, as we all know, to some degree. So, yeah, I think uh, 
a guy like Meta World Peace is taking his chances if he uh, swings his elbows too freely, depending on what state he's in. Yeah, I agree with Eldon. If you look at the cases in, in Canada involving prosecution of hockey players, it was typically, uh, you know, an, a player who was, it was the visiting team player that was prosecuted, uh, not the home team player. So that home court advantage does extend into the court system. Well, well, Matthew, as we get ready to wrap up with our final thoughts, let's turn to you and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. You know, my, my sense is a lot of this is going to be driven, you know, culturally also. I think things are changing as leagues are cracking down on violence, not only the NFL, um, but the National Hockey League. And that's going to also, I, I think, uh, reduce some of it because no question players will you know, play to the fans, so to speak. We used to see that in hockey. It used to be a much more violent sport with the bench-clearing brawls. And I, I still believe the most effective way to um, curtail violence is by way of um, the, the regulatory body, the league, the commissioner, um, you know, taking effective steps to prevent this. You know, I, I agree that that's the best way, yeah. And, Matthew, can we get your contact information for our listeners? Yeah, the best way to reach me is by email, Matt.mitten at marquette.edu. And Eldon? Uh, my contact information is uh, eldonham, E L D O N H A M, at gmail.com. So that's the best way for me. I do have a website too that has contact info on it, which is uh, eldonham.com. So take a look at that. I agree with what Matt said about the, the leagues, the big boys, the pro sports ultimately being able to do a pretty good job of policing themselves. They can institute huge fines and suspensions. They've got some tools there to work with. Uh, there may be cases where that's not enough, but my, my chiefest worry is the trickle-down part. When the big boys are setting examples and the college players and high school players and the high school coaches start to take a cue from that, that's why it's a good idea that the NFL came down pretty hard on this New Orleans Saints scandal because you don't want uh, high school players and high school coaches getting involved in this kind of activity. And uh, it sets a bad example or a good example at the top, depending on how they uh, deal with it. Well, we're going to have to have you both back on sometime because I wanted to, I didn't even get to the topic, other topic I wanted to ask about, which was civil liability, <laughs> civil liability in these cases. But uh, this was a great discussion. I really appreciate you both uh, taking the time to be with us today. And I, I certainly learned a lot about... Uh, about sports law today. I enjoyed it. I'd be happy to come back. Great, gentlemen. Thank you both very much for being on the show. It's been uh, a really great uh, learning experience for us. And I don't know, Bob, uh, what are your thoughts about about uh, sports violence? Uh, well, I, I'm certainly no expert in the area. I, I think that uh, it, it gets out of control. You know, I, I, I think this New Orleans case is, is something where it's – I mean, this is beyond uh, the heat of the moment. Uh, you know, this this bothers me particularly, as as uh, one of the guests mentioned earlier in the program. Uh, and uh, I I think this is the kind of thing where uh, criminal prosecution should be looked at anyway and considered, uh, if not if not pursued. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I I played sports through high school and college and uh, participated in a lot of co full contact sports. And there is a certain risk that you take when you go out on the on the uh, field, but I don't think that you take the risk of 
someone losing their their head in the heat of the moment or uh, and then taking somebody out. I, I think that there's a line that we have to draw in sports, and we need to find out where that is and then start prosecuting some of the people that, that cross that line so that we can set an example and stop the level of violence in sports and you know play the game for what it is. Well, Makes sense. with that, Bob, I think we should wrap up this week's uh, Lawyer to Lawyer and, and thank our listeners as well for uh, for listening and reminding them that they can get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we have a brand new Android app where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your phone. And soon we hope to get... Uh, an iPhone app if we can get the uh, developers moving things along a little bit faster. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Well, uh, uh, thanks again to our guests and Craig. I look forward to talking to you again next week. See you then, Bob. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.